Welcome to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast. And you're very welcome back to the Hawkeye Psychic Rugby Union Podcast with your host Mark County. Joined again this week by Liam Breen. Liam, how are things? Super Mark, we're still celebrating already, I think. <laughs> Great, grand slam again. Oh, absolutely. You can probably hear the nose cold. I think there was a bit of excessive celebrations at the weekend by yours truly. So this episode, ladies and gentlemen, will focus in on Ireland's Grand Slam winning performance against England, securing the Triple Crown. So we'll have a look at the match, identify kind of the depth chart for Ireland in 2023. Also look at Six Nations team of the tournament. I think we have a few left field picks there, Liam. Also look at some of the other highlights from the last round of the Guinness Six Nations. And also URC is back. So round 16, we're really getting into the, the take of the playoff uh, fixtures and some mouth-watering fixtures on tap. Supposedly, let's start with the Viva Stadium on Saturday evening. Ireland triumphant 29-16 against a 14-man England. I suppose, get your reaction first. Challenge for us again. We talk about challenges on the way to the World Cup. Absolutely. And we absolutely find colours. That's the best thing about it. So, so yeah, absolutely, Liam. I uh, agree with you there. I suppose we'd kind of expected England to come in as a wounded animal in the Aviva. I know we'd gotten a bit of commentary on YouTube about our predictions saying we were well off the mark, but I felt England would be competitive for a good 60, 65 minutes of this game, and so it proved. I mean, you could probably talk about the occasion, maybe some players being a little bit nervous from Ireland, but I suppose England for the first 60 minutes really were very cohesive. I mean, their attacking lines were probably pretty conservative, but they were getting points on the board, I suppose. We can talk about Owen Farrell. He slotted home the penalty on the 8th and 15th minute and establishing a 6-0 lead. And we'd kind of mentioned last week how the crowd would react to it. And I mean, probably there was a few nervy moments, particularly in that first quarter. Yeah, there certainly were. I mean, look, that first quarter, you know, um, I suppose they were still up, you know. That... Um, I think that England, like, just they brought the physicality there that was lacking. Really did front it up. It wasn't going to be the most thing. And they they used, I think, the backs to good effect. As you said, they, they kind of had a, it wasn't a, a very expansive game plan, strong game plan. Freddie Stewart, very strongly. Too laggy. Like, he's, I mean, that guy shows why he's there. I mean, he's such a white dog. Of, of the impact. And as you said, um, actually, Farrell kicked some excellent penalties. Even Jack Willis, I think we have to give him an honourable mention because I thought he just played like a man's possessed, looked like a test career was on the line there, and he certainly has uh, kind of uh, answered the doubters, I suppose, after that France performance, you know, an outstanding performance. And I thought England as well, they really did kind of create chaos at times in the breakdown really, you know, throwing bodies in there. Now, I mean, Jakob Kuiper probably was slow to probably direct to that. But, um, I mean, England were making it very hard for Ireland to really settle into this game. But uh, I suppose, Liam, you know, championships are made on defining moments. And, again, the Danchi and Troy on 33 minutes. Again, another marvellous move involving several players. The orchestration of the move, absolutely incredible and Dancing and crossing over, and I mean, you could get the sense of relief from the crowd, and also the players once that try went over. Yeah. I suppose in terms of the Dan, Dan Sheehan try, what um, struck me is how innovative Ireland have been in a lot of their try scoring this year, and then when you get to this thing where it's an off a ball, a Vanderfleer popping off, and then passing back inside to Sheehan. I just thought it was. Um, Absolutely brilliantly worked try and really first time in the game where we're talking about 32 minutes in and we're actually getting ahead on the scoreboard. And it was, it was a crucial score, really, I suppose, to settle us as well, to be fair. And then, of course, we got the conversion from Johnny and, uh, yeah, 10 6 up. I suppose we'll come to the 41st minute. I mean, it looked as if the teams were going into the sheds 10 6 up for Ireland, and then the Freddie Stewart incident with Hugo Keenan. Uh, I suppose, what was your viewpoint on the incident? And did you feel it warranted a red card? At the time, it looked a lot worse than it was. To be fair, and, and it, the key thing was when Piper, he, um, you know, he basically went to the sideline, basically that, 
that he, he had to do something. Artificial yeah. sport in his ear, it absolutely very, very, very hard hit to the head of you. Um, when I looked at it after, though, I mean, you have to, you have to say it would be a harsh red because what was Freddie Stewart to do there? Already in the air. Like Keenan was coming in with it downwards. So, I mean, what was he to do, you know? Um, it would have yellow card, you know, probably something that hasn't really been seen an awful lot when we talk about red cards, which was your background or shoulder to someone who's in attitude. Arms. This was, this was different to be. So I, I personally now would, would be saying that Chris George, it was a bit of hard done by, and I think the IRFU will probably argue for the same case and try and try and rescind his uh, red card anyway. Yeah, because, I mean, we've talked at length in this podcast over the tournament on contentious decisions that didn't issue red cards. So I suppose Freddie Stewart, when he compares the body of evidence in terms of an awful lot of these um, incidents, can probably feel a little bit hard done by... I suppose the slow-mo and the image of his kind of elbow uh, hitting Hugo Keenan just isn't a good look. But to be fair, as you say, uh, Liam, I'll be with you at the time. I felt it was an extremely harsh red card. But then again, Hugo Keegan, Keenan did actually have to leave the field uh, due to HIA. So Jimmy O'Brien coming on. So maybe, you know, it's maybe something that World Rugby probably will need to really evaluate in terms of these contentious decisions. Really, the consistency from an officiating perspective really needs to be looked at because we've had too many flashpoints in this tournament. And really, I've heard enough of commentary in terms of Ireland would have gone on to win that game. But again, England being shorthanded by a player, I mean, it's a significant game changing moment here, Liam. Yeah, it, it is. It is, of course. You know, although to be fair, <laughs> England even started well in the second half. So for a while there, it didn't, it didn't seem to affect England uh, hugely. Yeah, I mean, look, as the game went on, especially, you know, last 20 minutes, it's it's bound to have a huge effect on a game like that. Especially since it's already, uh, by halftime, England had, uh, I suppose, an awful lot of tackling, and Ireland had a huge amount of possession. So it was going to be fatigue was going to save in the second half. Yeah, absolutely, Liam. I mean, the tackle count alone there, you know, within that first 20 minutes of the second half from England was pretty kind of pretty impressive I mean Jack Willis kind of finished with a game high of 22 tackles I thought the crowd again was getting a little bit nervy after Arrow's 51st minute penalty just to leave a point in the difference but I suppose Ryan Baird's uh, turnover really did kind of galvanise the team and the crowd here uh, culminating in a try from Robbie Henshaw on 62 minutes a great kick from Johnny Sexton kind of creating the, the scrum five and the old Connacht combo of Bundy Akai and Robbie Henshaw combining for Henshaw to go over. I mean, key, key championship minutes here and Ireland delivered. Yeah, as you said about Ryan Baird, I mean, that's, that's another crucial uh, turnover. Like, sort of crucial turnover. Almost as important for us in the championship to win it in all those games as to score those tries, really. Um, yeah, look, I mean... Aki combining there to put Henshaw over under the post, pretty much. Uh, that, that was a massive. Then you're looking at 1 to 15, 9, and the conversion was eight points. It was the first time that we got, a, I suppose, a converted shy ahead, uh, and we certainly kicked on there in a 10 minute period after that. Absolutely. Um... I think, again, the execution of the play here, Gibson Park being very prominent here, changing the focal point of attack. But I think even 12-13 from Ireland, again, realising the mismatch out wide with uh, Sinclair and also George out wide trying to defend uh, the channels. Again, there was only going to be one out coming there with three quarters of uh, Bundy Akai and uh, Robbie Henshaw. That was a very well-worked move. And I thought the Sexton conversion was really kind of a dagger to the England's hearts. Again, eight points up, a two-score game. I could see no way back from England, really. And again, you could see uh, confidence really oozing from this Ireland performance. And then, 
again, some great build-up play uh, for Dan Sheehan uh, to go over on the 68 minutes. I mean, what an offload from Jack Conan, but so many players, again, instrumental with the setup of the move. They were, of course, yeah. Um, and and that's that's the impressive thing. Ireland were, were through the phases, because that's what you have to do. Conan's offload was just, oh, just some sublime. Uh, and then for Sheehan to finish it right between the right hand. That really was it then. I mean, I mean, England would have had to score two or three tries really to to win the game. Uh, looks to be fair, they they did. They came back, and Jamie George got over the line there. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a very well worked score from Jamie George. Really showed England front five in their potent best, really, on an attacking mall, and really Ireland had no answers to that. But again, Ireland kind of composure to the fore. Again, it just seemed to me at will, whenever they wanted to score now at this stage, and then culminating really in Rob Herring uh, going over. But again, look at the evolution of this Ireland side, even in the last 12 to 18 months, the number of supporting runners for Rob Herring here, either left or right here, was the image for me. Uh, just again, another well-worked score, really identifying the kind of the numbers game out wide. And uh, Rob Herring, a, a bit like Tom O'Toole and the rest of the bench, really uh, delivered and great score to secure the bonus point win. I mean, we didn't really need it here, Liam, but I mean, it was nice to kind of finish it on a high uh, with four tries on the day. It certainly was. I think like, we pretty much had all the way through. Um, and look, I mean, you know, otherwise it would have been what we predicted. I think we were predicting a seven point show. And so yeah, that 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 ends. Um, and yeah, look, it was nice to to really, I suppose, turn the screw. Really, you need to do that when you have such control there. Final twenty minutes, and when you're playing fourteen, you need, you need to show that you can finish off. Like I kind of alluded to it there in the previous point, but even our bench impact again, given Hugo Keenan went off. I think we asked the question last week: Who's our fifteen? Well, I think we kind of know that in Jimmy O'Brien now. I mean, I didn't think he put a foot wrong uh, during his second-half cameo. I mean, Tom O'Toole, again, a very productive outing for the Ulster prop. Seven tackles, was solid as a rock. Rob Herring, again, there was key decisions made, you know, in terms of uh, back row personnel changes here, like Jack Cronin, Conan coming in for Peter O'Mahony. So, again, everyone really delivering here massively from an Ireland perspective and uh, really does bode well for a World Cup in September. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, I look, look, every position we'd have to keep going. Bar Sexton is absolutely well covered and extremely um, happy with any of those players having to come in. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an excellent position to be in and uh, long may it continue. We could really talk about the depth chart for Ireland. It has been severely tested in the Six Nations Championship, it would be fair to say, across all units. Liam, I think you've kind of hinted here, uh, the 10 uh, jersey here seems to be maybe a little bit of concern for you. Um, who do you think right now, uh, I mean, Sexton's a given here, and maybe Ross Byrne as well, but who do you feel may slot into that third choice uh, fly half uh, position here when we get to a World Cup uh, announcement uh, in August? I think we have to be honest about it. Like, like, like I rate Jack Crowley, right? But I mean, like, how can you bring a guy as your third choice 10, right? Who I think what's going to happen is Ben Healy is going to get selected for a lot of Mr. Games and and, and uh, Joey going forward in terms of out half until the end of the season. So I don't think I don't think there's really a live option. Um, so then your, your other options really are Kieran Frawley and... Uh, Joey is definitely an option as well. There has to be looked. And um, they, they, they basically are the, the other two guys that we're looking at. Yeah, I kind of agree with you on that, really. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a fascinating end to, I think, the URC season and also the Challenge Cup and the Champions Cup as well. Just to see who from that pack that you've basically identified, who actually puts the hand up for selection, because I don't think there's much in it between those three uh, players that you've uh, alluded to here. And I mean, you have Harry Byrne as well, but. Well, the key question is here, how are the Leinster guys going to really get game minutes if Johnny Sexton is going to be the key guy to control for Leinster as they kind of go for URC and Champions Cup glory. So is there any other depth chart um, areas that you're concerned about, Liam, heading into the Sport Cup for Ireland? Um, look, in, ter- in terms of centre, right? I mean, we are very strong at, at centre. 
was probably more at um, at twelves. I mean, because look, you have GP, you have Dusty, and you two. He's well. He's he's Robbie Hinshaw, right? So you're really looking at Gary Ringlow as kind of as an out and out for being. So yeah, it would be kind of a good idea possibly to look at maybe another option if you can. And so I suppose and Osborne is is kind of twelve and I'd say he wants to probably play thirteen. The only other play, player I could probably throw in here is Nathan Duck. I know we're big fans of him. Uh, in Ulster Rugby and I feel he has an instrumental role to play in Ulster Rugby particularly down the stretch particularly in that last 16 game against Leinster do you ever see here they're in a good position in terms of getting a home field advantage in the playoffs I mean a guy who's very versatile in terms of 9 and 10 he could now I mean the, the concept of a late bolter here is probably an awful lot of the squad positions are locked but I think if you're looking for a bolter here, maybe Nathan Doak is probably that that can provide maybe the 9 and 10 versatility if he were to impress from a financial level. But uh, yeah, I suppose loose head for me as well here, uh, Lean, uh, for me. Uh, I mean, Andrew Porter again, absolutely heroic. Again, he plays 76 minutes uh, on Saturday. So, I mean, again, Keen Healy comes on for the cameo. But uh, is that maybe management maybe hinting something here in terms of depth chart at Loosehead not being kind of fully uh, bought in here to maybe Healy or Kilcoyne making an impact off the bench? Yeah, and yeah, and you are right. And I mean, if, he, if, he, if injury happened to one of those guys, I mean, suddenly you really are scraping the barrel again to try and get someone. Who do you get? Like, who's who's next? Do you know what I mean? Is it, is it Josh Witcherly? Is it? Whoever is playing as the as the Ulster you said prop like you know what I mean you're you're you are like you there um, I'd also I suppose that we alluded to, to before is too too about um Hugo Keenan who's out now obviously as as fifty again someone needs to actually start fifteen um in in a test game and and I'm a big fan of Jimmy O'Brien. I certainly would have been at him there, and obviously you'd be looking at Hansen there as well. Absolutely. No, Jimmy O'Brien goes on to play, and if he's fit, he's, he's gone. I mean, he's shown his versatility now in terms of 15. Again, we know he can play back three, and also Leinster, he can play in three quarters as well, so he shows that versatility. So I don't think we need to be worrying about Jimmy O'Brien. I think the fascinating one here would be the likes of a Jacob Stockdale or even a Keith Earls. I think there's going to be one or two maybe senior players who have been looking on the outside may miss... The squad here but again they have time in the next few weeks to really kind of impress but again i think it's a very competitive squad here Liam. and again if the team can hold it together in terms of expectations and pressure and continue to play in terms of the manner they have been doing i mean the sky's the limit here i still think there's good scope for improvement here from ireland particularly uh attacking wise and also kind of packed so i mean i don't think we've seen the full tricks here from ireland yet uh, heading into this world cup I'm kind of with you there. Uh, I, I, you know, let's be honest about it. I mean, uh, we haven't quite hit the heights in, I suppose, look at the final two games that we had, you know. If we look, if we be honest about it, compared to the first three, where we were absolutely at a um, ridiculously good level, right? So we kind of went, I don't know, we hit the peak and come down a bit for the final two games, but it just shows that we're still one each one comfortably. And we have an awful lot more in us. And that's a good thing coming into the world. On the basis of these five fixtures, we've won fixtures in different ways. When you think about the Welsh game, we really kind of took it. We sucked the oxygen out of the Principality Stadium in the first 20 minutes with the pack in our attacking running play. I mean, you can say about France, France was just all out attack from both sides. And then we had the nitty gritty games, the Italian game as well. You know, we really had to absorb an awful lot of good attacking pressure from Italy. Scotland as well, throw different looks as well, and we really use our pack. So it, the fundamental, I think, area that will probably please Andy Farrell, Simon Easterby, and the rest of the management, my cat, would be, look, they've won games very convincingly here, Lean, more than 10 points on any of the games. Again, four of the games, they secured bonus point tries, which I think is a phenomenal achievement, really, and... 
to be on, honest, they basically won games in different ways. And I think that's maybe an ominous sign for an awful lot of teams going into the World Cup. How do you actually beat this Ireland side? Because if you go physical, they can go physical. If you go all out attack, they have the ball skills and attacking game plans and running lines to really kind of uh, expose you. So I think an awful lot of head coaches here, particularly in the pool where Ireland are in, are really going to be scratching their heads here and really looking to desperately look for game plans here to um, really compete with Ireland come the World Cup. Yeah, and I'd add to it also they have an inspirational coach in, in Andy Farrell. I mean, I, I think they'd run through a brick wall for him, you know. He's such a likeable guy as well, and he's a winner, you know, that always helps. Um, but the fact is, look, they're backboned in key positions by truly great players. And that's what you need if you want to win a World Cup. And let's be honest, France have that, Ireland have that, South Africa have that. They are the three teams to, 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 to look at, really, realistically. So um, that's also something like that, that you either have it or you don't, really. Yeah, I'd agree with you now, because I think for the likes of the England's, Welsh and Italians for that matter, it's... I mean, the time is pretty much really closed in now. I mean, all they have is three to four pre-season World Cup games to get some sort of structure going. So, I mean, like Ireland coming into that World Cup uh, in a fantastic spot and same with France as well. I suppose, uh, Liam, you know, you mentioned Andy Farrell here as well. I mean, the evolution of the side, particularly in the last 12 to 18 months under his stewardship, he's really kind of taken on what Joe Schmidt era brought, but he has elevated the players, the skill set, the ambition of the side to really play when required. Uh, I think it's been a phenomenal job for Andy Farrell here. And I mean, I think England fans must be looking at Envy here, looking at how good Andy Farrell is right now, given what the, they actually did to Andy Farrell and uh, Stuart Lancaster and sacked both of them in 2015. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and they were a very good coaching to get in 2015. And you, you, you then kind of wonder, you know, was it a lot of it down to the players as well? But anyway... The thing with but Andy Farrell is he has progressed the game plan. I mean, and now they play with abandon and they play with width and they play with power. They're just as you say, they're a handful. They, they you, you can't prevent one game and suddenly the next part of the game they're they have a very strong uh, line out mall. They have an excellent um, scrum, general scrum, brilliant at the breakdown. Um, almost um, impeccable line out. Then, in terms of short from half backs, since try scoring wingers, Keenan um, is an inspirational, and you have some powerful centres. So, I mean, everything is covered there, really. Fully agree with you. I mean, even looking at the stats on the game 98% Rooks won, 100% Maws won here, 7 out of 7. Again, Lionel has been so consistently good for Ireland in the Six Nations Championship. Again, 12 out of 14 uh, against a very vaunted England set-piece. And the same in terms of the scrum, 4 out of 5, 80% here, whereas England were 6 out of 9. So I think that kind of tells the tale of the tape. Historically with England, you know, the physicality they would have brought would have really posed problems here about maybe five, six years ago. But this team and the players have really evolved here. They've really kind of taken those lessons and... Uh, it's been a superb uh, championship here. A mighty congratulations to Ireland. Andy Farrell, the management, Paul O'Connell as well, very instrumental as well. All the backroom staff and the players. I mean, a magnificent game, magnificent championship and a fitting end for Johnny Sexton as well here, Liam, leaving the Six Nations as a Grand Slam winner and Triple Crown winner. Uh, absolutely. Very um, decorated players. His final home game in Dublin. Great win. Uh, I suppose, Liam, can we get your Six Nations team of the tournament? Well, that's a question. What, what's the tournament surprise? But look, yeah, if I'm going to go with the pack, right, let's start with the pack. Um, I, I would go with um, Porter, his head, then Sheehan, and I'll go with as, as the tight head prop. Um, I just felt, look, I mean, they were, they, they were, they were up by far with the standouts. Um, I suppose who was unlucky I suppose the, the French uh, by said I always thought, thought that Marchand was also obviously there um, I also thought too you know to be fair um, Turner 
from from Scotland, the Scottish yeah. guys certainly. Uh, Pierre Schumann, uh, as well, undoubtedly was there. They're both. In terms of the line out uh, and the second row, it had to be Flamon and um, Ryan for me. Head and shoulders above anyone else. Um, Asians. And, and then I go with a back row of um, Bush, Van der Fleer and Doris. And yeah, I mean, you, you could have picked likes of, I suppose, Peter Mahoney was the obvious one there. And then Olivia and um, Aldrich. And even, I must say, Lorenzo Pannoni of Italy as well. And with uh, Richie, Scotland. So that would be my pack. And then I'm going to go <laughs> at 15. I'm going to go with uh, uh, the favorite of mine this stage is um, Thomas Ramos, um, who was brilliant in attacking sense, but also just like I was just in awe of his goal kicking. This guy is the best goal kicker in the world. He can kick from any angle, from any distance. Um, and look, he, he really, to be fair, he really um, was a vital cog in France's back line play, uh, link play. So I, I would controversially probably put him just ahead of Hugo Keenan. And um, then in terms of the rest of the, the back line, um, he would have to be for me low going in on the left. Like, no doubt the guy has been. He's really stood up and he's really improved his game. I mean, this is the thing about it. His defensive game has been brilliant. In, and offensively, again, he's, a, he's an incredible And Pino has to be in, on the net. Right. I mean, this guy is like 20 tries and 24 tests. It's just probably the most informed winger in the world, even though he's a, <laughs> a converted centre. But the guy is just... A supreme footballer, I think that that's what I get about him. And, and then in the centre, I'm going to go with two Scots. I'm going to go with two Pelutu, and I'm going to go with Hugh Jones. I just thought it was a combination. They were without par um, in the Six Nations. Um, yeah, I mean, other mentions for the likes of obviously Green Rose and uh, that Piku uh, as well it was excellent. Um, to stood head and shoulders for me. Then in terms of halfbacks, I mean, I don't think we can even have to debate number nine. Nine picks himself. I mean, what he even did uh, the last day with, with other passes, just uh, just incredible, actually. Um, best player in the world, you know, is, is and it's it's just a joy to to see him. Play. And then alongside him, I'm going to go with Finn Russell, um, ahead of Sexton, and then to my back as well. Um, I just thought that, that Russell, again, in his first three games, was was absolutely electric. Um, his goal kicking was on par. He, he break, um, and he brought up all the other players into the game. So I, I'd have to go with him. Um, for this season, I just don't cure for. But that's kind of my Six Nations uh, first 15 team. Yeah, no, very interesting there, Rally, to be fair. I suppose I'll go with the, the forwards first. I suppose I picked Cyril Bay from France. Just didn't think he put a foot wrong during the Six Nations Championship. thought he was the most dominant loose set there. Dan Sheehan for me as hooker, but I would give an honourable mention maybe to George Turner as well from Scotland and Marchand from France. Three, I can't look anywhere uh, than Finley Bealham. I think his cameos, particularly at the start of the tournament, really set a foundation here for Ireland, particularly on set piece. I thought he was outstanding in terms of tight head in a position that Ireland and management probably fans had concerns going in. But Finley Bealham has taken his opportunity and has been immense. So uh, Finley Bealham for me at tight head. I suppose, uh, again, I think Flamel and James Ryan, but I suppose an honourable mention to Federico Russo from Italy, was very much a primary line-out uh, winner for uh, Italy, uh, and I thought it was very impressive as well. Um, the back row, I suppose, Van der Fleer, Caelan Dora, se- uh, 7 and 8. I'm kind of torn a little bit in terms of 6. 
again, Francois Cruz for me from France. Again, his impact in the last two games was immense. Uh, again, Sebastian Negri, but Peter Mahoney for me on the marquee moments. Again, when leadership was required, I mean, Peter Mahoney just basically takes an awful lot of boxes. You know, the first name of the team sheet for me. So he's uh, in the back row. I suppose, look, no surprise, DuPont at nine. I would go for Sexton at 10 just purely because of his consistent all-round performances. Take nothing away from Finn Russell here, but I think uh, just uh, Sexton, he is still the fulcrum for this Ireland attacking side, the creativity, everything else. And, you know, he really did Sean um, during the tournament. I suppose back three, I'd go for Hugo Keenan, only just. I think it's more heart overhead because Tomas Ramos just was incredible. I would go Mac Hansen and Damien Pinot to fill the back three. And then 12-13, I'd go Jonathan Dante. No, you're going to say to me, you only played the last few games, but I think you saw, particularly with the French management here in Galtier, how important Jonathan Dante will be to France in the World Cup 2023. His physicality, both defensively and with ball in hand as first receiver, really did add a new dimension to France. And also Hugh Jones at 13. I think he just had a superb tournament from start to finish. And... Uh, to be perfectly fair, Ringrose really did uh, kind of run close, but I think uh, Hugh Jones really did step up this year. So uh, I think very interesting team uh, teams determined there from both of us here, Liam. I suppose, uh, Liam, any other kind of closing remarks here on the Six Nations Championship? Anything else stand out for you in the last round of uh, the games last weekend? Yeah, um, look, 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 for me, uh, I, I still have to say this uh, last time five games, easily to me, have been a huge and a huge pleasure to watch uh, tournaments. And look, we can say that look, they haven't kind of got quite got over the line in games, um, and really it's been kind of brain fart moments, two or three brain fart moments for the entire 80 minutes in virtually every game that has pretty much um, prevented them from getting at least one win. And just feel there's been such a progression. As you say, um, like this Canoni and Russo and uh, so that caliber, and uh, there's nothing about it that there's real quality coming through there. Also, I think that Scotland have really become a very formidable side for Gregor Townsend. And um, we think, you know, the likes of Schumann and Turner. She and Gray, but there's, there's some huge quality there, and I think it's going to be they're going to be tough opponent for a cup. And in terms of England, I, I think England and France, sorry, England and Italy, I think. Sorry, scratch that. <laughs> and in terms of England and Wales, I think. Sides are, are trouble in terms of their groups. N- not necessarily that they won't come out of their groups, but like they may finish second for a final at least. And in and then for me, um, Ireland and, and France simply the two best teams by far and away in position. Yeah, I agree with you there, Liam. I, I think uh, that Scotland Italy game. 12-point win for Scotland is a massive injustice to Italy. How the closing exchanges on that game in Murrayfield. Pretty nervy. I mean, for Scotland, they can point Blair Kinghorn scoring a hat-trick, but I definitely thought that the attacking threat without Finn Russell was significant uh, to Palutu. And Hugh Jones really didn't really fire with uh, Blair Kinghorn at controls. Granted, he scores the hat-trick at tries, but there's a few misfires here in terms of going it alone when I think there was kind of moves here that were... Didn't go to plan, but I mean, the closing exchanges here, Liam. Italy really growing in this game. I mean, Garbisi's uh, deft chip brings Tomas Mas Allen in after 62 minutes. And game in the melting pot, and really and truly, right under Scottish posts, Angus Garn and match official had pinged Scotland repeatedly for offside in malls and, and a breakdown. And when it came to the key decision, I, I think he absolutely botched it. And it kind of led to the Blair King Horn decisive try. So I think from, let's say, Kieran Crowley and the Italian um, management and also Rugby Union Federation, I think they need 
uh, an urgent review here with the officials because I think some key decisions have gone against Italy, particularly in close games. So, so I think Italy are progressing. Now, mind you, they have a very difficult group with France and New Zealand there. But again, I think we can see the nucleus of the attacking side. I mean, England and Wales here, I mean, it's going to be... Now, in fairness to Wales, I thought in Paris, I thought it was a very credible performance. I think they played with expression. They played with no pressure. Reese Webb at nine, I thought was very good. And also Toby Valato, again, I think he's been the standout again for Wales in eight. And again, they scored four tries in Paris. Literally gave as good as they got against France, but I suppose when you have Uni Antonio basically barreling down at you five metres out, I mean, that sort of platform is hard to come by. So I think from that perspective, it's been a very interesting tournament, I think, Lean, for an awful lot of teams. I think Ireland, France, Scotland can come away pretty pleased in terms of some aspects. I suppose England really are soul-searching now in terms of a game plan. Who is their 10? I suppose we've seen Manuel Tulangi now basically establish himself at 12 after only 80 minutes of game time uh, this year. But also you probably have Jack Willis coming into the, the into the, the lineup here more regularly. And then you have Tom Curry as well. So I think it's going to be very pack-orientated for England, uh, really heading into that World Cup. And that side of the draw with England and Wales looks a little bit softer, if I'm being brutally honest. So maybe they can build a bit of momentum on the World Cup group. I suppose, Liam, we'll leave it there. I suppose we can maybe focus in on the URC, Liam. It's back on round 16. Some fascinating games on tap here. Maybe we can start off right straight away on Friday night with Leinster Rugby Stormers. And all indications is that Stormers are coming with a big loaded squad looking to take the scalp of Leinster Rugby ahead of the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, look, probably one of the games of the season, you know. I mean... Actually, I would say Leinster and Stormers and, and certainly Munster, Munster, Glasgow. Really, Leinster and Stormers, <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see how it goes because they're both like pretty much done dusted in terms of qualifying. And I think it's more a case of the Stormers just want to make an absolutely um, massive statement to come to, to Leinster, who've been unbeaten all season themselves, to come away with the victory and um, because that's something that's, you know, further down the line, these two teams realistically could end up uh, also in the final of either competition, to be honest. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating because they're also the two most, you know, very ambitious teams. Um, The Stormers in terms of the South Africans are most unusual in the way that they play. It's going to absolutely be a belter of a game. Absolutely, because I know Leinster, the massive Irish contingent here, are going to probably take the week off. But again, this is an amazing opportunity for fringe players and players trying to get into that 23-man squad for that Champions Cup last 16, last 16 game against Ulster Rugby. So, I mean, it doesn't come much harder than a full-strength Stormers outfit here who can beat you, you know, particularly out wide, but also they have a formidable pack here that can really set a platform. So... I mean, the comments from the Leinster coaching staff is that they're eagerly looking forward to this. I think I think if you hit the nail on the head here, Liam, I think it's a statement, a psychological statement to be made here. These are the top two sides in the league. And, I mean, if the Storms were to come to the RDS and secure a win here, I mean, that could be massive come the playoffs here, uh, given, you know, the run of fixtures here for Leinster. I mean, they do have a South African trip. They've already secured kind of their top two as birth here. But again, losing to Stormers at home may kind of raise maybe some concerns here if the two sides were to face each other, particularly in a URC kind of uh, playoff final. Yeah, because I mean, last season it was only that, that you know, Bulls semi-final that put something into Leinster's heads and this could certainly turn the screw again. I think Sexton is actually out for this game, which again puts it, puts it into a different, different perspective. And, you know, you, to be fair, you have Leinster, huge amount of players coming back off the Six Nations. Uh, Stormers, nice and and, and, re- and rested in, in a general sense. Yeah, I, I still think Leinster will probably win by three or four points, um, but that's about the height of it. I, th- I think it'll be a very open game, four or five tries each, you know. Yeah, it really has the potential of game of the regular season, really, about it, doesn't it, Liam? With the top two... Yeah, I'd probably go with you slight edge Leinster. I mean, they have a formidable record in the RDS. But as the Bulls really showed last season in the playoffs, I mean, if you can get at Leinster, particularly from a fun five perspective, anything is possible. And I mean, the Stormers are looking to make a statement, given that they have their 
full squad coming up to Dublin uh, this weekend. So it'll be an interesting one. I'm eagerly looking forward to it. I suppose Zebri, Cardiff Rugby here. Zebri, 0 for 15 heading into this. Do you give them any chance against Cardiff Rugby? Um, I think I think their their long losing run, unfortunately, is going to continue, and Cardiff will come away with a pretty comfortable victory. Yeah, I mean, again, though, it's it's at that stage now where if you were Italian rugby, you'd have to question Zebra. You know, what I mean, like, how can you go an entire season without a win? You know, what I mean, and how can you justify? I suppose funding them—that's that's that's really a, a dilemma at this stage. Um, but I, yeah, I think Cardiff. I I go by fifteen points, uh, quite comfortable to win. And I think the break has been key for Cardiff rugby. They've really struggled in terms of squad depth since the start of the year. Another two to three weeks off here since the last fixture, getting more bodies back. So I think for Dai Young, I think this is an ideal fixture to kind of build a, a bit of momentum here because they're just out of the playoffs. But if they can string a few results together to do with Connacht Rugby coming as well um, on their schedule. So, I mean, a few wins here could propel them into the top eight. So, yeah, for me, Cardiff Rugby, I think by 20 points here. And it's true for you, I think, for the Italian Rugby Union. Really, they need to focus in on Zebri. What is the role of Zebri? I mean, it's been used before as developmental in terms of players kind of kind of getting their performance elevated and then moving on to Benetton. But I think, as you say here, Liam, it's a sorry tale of 15 losses during the season that will suck the life out of any ball club. So I think the Italian Rugby Federation really need to now see where the finances can take Zebri and maybe hit a few marquee signings here to get them a little bit more competitive. And that would boost probably the home indigenous squad that they do have. I suppose, uh, Liam, on Saturday, we have Osprey's Dragons and the Welsh Region Derby in Swansea. Again, there'll be uh, plenty of local bragging rights here. Who do you fancy in this one? Yeah, again, two, I suppose, look, evening match teams, really, you'd have to say. In terms of the Ospreys, they, they have they have some serious quality. They've showed it already this season in qualifying out in Europe. And I think at home... I think Ospreys definitely have enough to um, to beat the Dragons. I, th- I think, again, they've been in a good open game. I think the likes of Tipperich, uh, Alwyn Jones, uh, these guys still have an awful lot to prove. I- I'm going to go with the Ospreys kind of finishing the season on a high. I'm going to go with maybe plus 18 points for the Ospreys. Yeah, I'd agree with you here. I think the Ospreys here is really a key point in their season. I'm just thinking even uh, on the horizon here, a last 16 game away to Saracens in the Alliance. So really, they need a form guide coming in here. And again, they had a disastrous away trip to Munster during the Six Nations window. So again, against the Dragons. Now, there's not much between these teams typically, but I think if Ospreys need to really be seriously respected going into that Saracens game. They really need to be beating the Dragons by 15 points here. So I think I will edge it to the Ospreys. I think 12, 15 points should be sufficient. Bonus point here as well. So yeah, I think that's a home home win there. I suppose another intriguing game. I mean, all these games going in were three rounds out from the playoffs. Benetton rugby against Lions. I mean, two teams here. It's literally screaming at me, save our season given uh, the predicament of Benetton. They started the season so well, but given the Six Nations uh, window, they've kind of dropped back to the chasing playoff pack against a Lions team who had a much much morale-boosting win against Glasgow Warriors last time out. Who do you fancy here, Liam? Absolutely. I mean, the Lions are going to come and they're, they're, they're coming to, to win this game. There's nothing about their target in this game. Um, for me, I look at the last three fixtures of games, Benetton still can get that eighth spot because it's between themselves, Connacht. To do that, they certainly have to win this whole fixture against the Lions. It is a must-win game. Their final two games are, are away in South Africa. So um, when needs must, I, th- I think that Benetton will do it. I, I, I really, really, you know, we talk about Italian rugby, it, it's a rising tide that fall boats. And Benetton, to me, this season have been as good as any team in the, in the league here. At home, certainly, they've they've been very good. But you know, I I, I think of the so we'll look that uh, that fixture at home to to Munster it was a bit of a blip. But um, otherwise, I, I think Benetton will, will get the win. I think that they will just about get two or three penalties. So I'm, I'll go with, with eight points win for Benetton. 
Peloton really are serious of being playoff contenders. They need a bonus point win here. And I think they'll get it against the Lions. Lions have been a very hot and cold for me this season. Again, very morale-boosting win against Glasgow Warriors. But again, they haven't really backed this up during the season. And again, their, whole, their away form has been very hit and miss. So I think this is a glorious opportunity for Benetton Rugby to really kind of hit a marker here heading into Challenge Cup against Connacht next weekend. And then obviously uh, kind of really to secure a top eight uh, berth here for the URC because really and truly we need Italian teams to be in the Champions Cup here as well. So uh, for me, it's Benetton Rugby. Uh, I suppose we've mentioned Connacht here. Connacht entertain Edinburgh Rugby. I suppose Connacht have had a fine run of form here since the start of the year see themselves in playoff contention against the Edinburgh side here, Liam, that have really kind of been inconsistent, been really exposed by certain sides, namely Leinster Rugby in the previous round. Now, Connacht do have a few injury worries and concerns going into this. Do you give Edinburgh a chance here of maybe salvaging a lifeline here on their playoff hopes in the sports ground? Yeah, I mean, look, they are kind of tricky opponents, aren't they? You know, they, they started the season so well and they were looking as heads on to, to be in the top eight, but it hasn't quite worked out for them. Again, they still have the two Argentinians, very special talents. They still have, um, have Kinghorn. They still have the very good uh, props. So, I mean, they're, they're a side that will come. They'll be dangerous. They're, they're, they're going to come with the no, I suppose, sort of restrictions on them. But I do think... Connacht, you know, this is again another must-win game for Connacht. At this stage, it's more about getting getting the win. I know it's about getting the bonus points as well, but for me, it's about Connacht getting the win, and I believe that they will they will do that. It won't be pretty, to be honest about it. It could be probably four or five points, um, for Connacht. Um, I think there'll be a lot of uh, kicking, penalty kicks. It'll just be one of those games where you have to win, and yeah, I go with. Five six points for for Connacht. Yeah, I think this is an enormous fixture for both sides. I mean, Edinburgh lose this, I think they're pretty much done for the year, and they're consigned to Challenge Cup next season, which is very disappointing given the squad that they have assembled in Edinburgh. Connacht, they're going to be facing into a bit of a personnel injury crisis. Uh, rumours here that Dennis Buckley is out. Obviously, Finley Bealham is out. They're hoping that Finley Bealham will be back for the latter stages in April. Also, Jack Carty is nursing a hamstring injury. Looks doubtful. You've Conor Fitzgerald, who's rumoured to be departing the squad and uh, the club at the end of the season. He's out because of an ankle surgery. So you'll have David Hawkshaw, who I know you rate massively here, Liam. So again, I think this will be where leaders are really required by Connacht. As I say, I don't think there's a bonus point here. But I think this is such a key playoff game for Connacht. Every game now is a must win. And again, I think they'll just nick it. But I think it might be two or three points here because Edinburgh are really going to have to earmark this game because the games are running out for them. I suppose, uh, Liam, Scarlets, who launched that incredible fight back against Munster in round 15 in Musgrave Park, facing a Sharks team, really looking for a bit of form heading into European competition the previous week. Who do you fancy in this one? Yeah, it's, it's quite intriguing, isn't it? be honest about it because look we keep saying about the sharks how much talent they actually have it's just crazy that first 15 but they don't seem to gel as a team um and they seem to go missing in a lot of the big games and um, then we also have I suppose that the scarlets who have had a pretty disastrous season in general but showed their attacking quality against uh, our monster away from home and again it's one of those fixtures where I'm kind of thinking we'll come to end of the season Scarlet's certainly playing for pride playing in front of their home fans maybe maybe the last game of the season and I just have this sneaking feeling it doesn't really make any sense but the, the Scarlet's will actually get a win just about get a win against the Sharks and uh, yeah I just think that this is kind of their 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 swan song for the season, um, and they're going to finish on a high. A significant fixture for Sharks the previous or the following week is that last sixteen fixture against Munster. So, an awful lot of their frontline players will be based in Durban, uh, watching this game. So, and we've seen with the Sharks repeatedly when that depth chart has been exposed, they haven't really turned up to the party. And I think this is a glorious opportunity for the Scarlets to uh, register a home win here. Again, they still have an outside chance 
of getting to the playoffs. They're currently sitting on 29 points. Now, they need a few results to go their way to really kind of challenge for top eight. But saying that, I think uh, I think this is a game for Scarlets. They showed an awful lot of upside, particularly in that second half against Munster Rugby. You can argue about Munster Rugby defensively, really switching off. But I think just the resiliency of the Scarlets team under Dwayne Peel, I think, was very impressive. I think they backed this up with a bonus point win against the Sharks. I suppose leading into Munster Rugby, Glasgow Warriors, a fifth playing fourth here. A real crunch tie here, Liam, in the context of top four uh, consolidation here. Who do you fancy here in Town Park on Saturday? Well, firstly, I think it's, it's going to be pretty much as close to a sellout as possible, or it should be anyway, because it, because of basically what's on the line here. Because what's on the line is is Munster to get a top four or top five position. Right. If we if we if we win, that that's that's the crucial is, or else we finish seventh or eighth. <laughs> that's pretty much um, by by losing here. That's how absolutely massive it is, you know, in terms of getting a good draw for for the knockout stages. Yeah, I mean, look, Glasgow have been up or down. Munster have been since that that disastrous opening period of the season. The form team in the URC in Dov, they have been. So you could also argue the Stormers, but. Munster certainly have been outstanding. I also think that there's an intriguing subplot because I think Ben Healy <laughs> could be about to break some Scottish hearts in this game as well because I, I think he's going to have a huge um, impact. I think, yeah, uh, we have, I suppose, players who have been away in the Six Nations, but we probably don't have, have, haven't had a huge amount of players in the Irish first 15. And maybe in a, in a way that will actually, for this this game and some remaining fixtures, will be a bit of a, an advantage for us as well. The fresher players that we're obviously going to have, I think again it, it won't be it'll be a hard fought in the trenches sort of sort of sort of game. Again, at this stage, I don't think it's about looking for bonus point wins. It's just about getting getting wins. And I would very much fancy Munster, um, five six points, will get there. Yeah, I think it's intriguingly poised, uh, Liam. Given Peter Armani, Connor Murray are on a down week this week after playing all the five games uh, for Ireland and Six Nations. Good news, I suppose, is Craig Casey, Gavin Coombs, Jack Crowley, Dave Kilcoyne, Roman Salano, and Ben Healy. They all returned back to training. Also, great news that Tom Hearn shoulder and Mike Haley ankle returned to full training this week. And coupled with Edwin Adogbo coming back in, uh, recovering from an ankle, I think that's huge. Uh, now, again, Glasgow coming in here, their form line has been very impressive since the start of the year, even taking into account their two wins against Edinburgh in the Scottish Derbies. They've won eight of the last nine games here in, in all competitions. So they're going to come here with good confidence. There's no love lost between these two either, Liam. I recall Rory Scannell hitting a monster penalty to win uh, a home fixture here with Glasgow a few years ago, I could see something similar here. I don't think there's going to be an inch of ground basically conceded by each. I think this will be a very abrasive game. I'll give a slight edge to Munster. Again, they're playing front foot rugby here. Very impressive. Now, the second half performance against Scarlet's probably will focus minds of Dennis Leamy. So I will be expecting a far improved defensive display from Munster for the full 80 minutes. And I think with the internationals coming back in, I think that might be the boost required because uh, a few of the guys really have a point to prove uh, going into that uh, Sharks game in Durban the following week. So I'll go for Munster. I don't think there's any bonus point here. I think maybe three to four points here, uh, really a very competitive game and probably one of the standouts along with Leinster and, uh, Leinster and Stormers. And I suppose last game here, again, another standout game, Ulster playing the Bulls. I mean, Ulster rugby really have recovered from their blip. Having to basically create a bit of a form line heading into that last 16 Champions Cup against Leinster. Against a Bulls team who, for me, Liam, look a little bit vulnerable in terms of the playoff race. There could be a team here that could be potentially caught and spat out in the top eight. Do you give uh, the Bulls any chance to beat Ulster in the Kingspan? Actually, I'd have to say I don't, actually. Um, I, I think the, uh, the Bulls, when we talk about the South African teams, you know, Stormers have literally flown off into the horizon. You know, they're so superior to their other teams. This season, second season syndrome, you know, in the league, the the, the Bulls again started kind of well, but um, their form has been very, very patchy uh, indeed. I think that some of their outstanding, you know, form players last year, well, obviously, they were out Kutsia, um, 
you know, their their hooker was brilliant last year as well. But those guys haven't quite hit the heights this year. And as you said, Ulster have really, to give them huge credit, they have resurrected their season. And it looked quite bad there after the beginning of the new year. And I think Ulster will actually have a, a comprehensive victory when I say a bonus point victory for Ulster over the Bulls, absolutely. Yeah, I'm kind of going with you there because the Bulls' home or away form has been patchy to say the least. Now they've had good cameos uh, at times, but again, I think Ulster rugby need to build this form line. They need a good performance heading into that Aviva Stadium last 16 Champions Cup fixture against Leinster rugby. You imagine likes of Robert Balacone, Jacob Stockdale, Mike Lowry, even. I suppose even from a centre combination perspective here, James Hume, Stuart McCluskey, there's guys there we talked about Nathan Duck at the start of this podcast. I mean, there's guys here that are going to have to put up their hand here and really kind of elevate their performances here going into the end of the season to be given recognition by Andy Farrell. So I can see only one result here. I think it's Ulster Rugby, bonus point win, 15, 20 points. I suppose for the Bulls, the consolation is that they're at home. Stand for round 17 and 18. They have a home game against Sebri, so I think that we should be, be calling that as probably a home win. But they do significantly have Leinster rugby, and Leinster's squad profile here might be interesting to say the least, particularly in the transal uh, for the last round. So they may be hinging on that result here. But I think for this week, uh, I think all the aces are with Ulster. I suppose, Dean, before we leave here, again, international test match news. Scotty Robertson being appointed as New Zealand head coach in 2024. Your reaction? Um, I, I, I'm quite surprised, not at, a, at his appointment, but at the manner of the appointment. Six months out from the World Cup, uh, it's almost un- unprecedented to say that, you know, this is our next coach. It's not, as, not, not like our, 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 our coach next month or in two months' time. This is the guy you're going to have after the World Cup and to have him in a press conference, I think it, to me, it smacks of the fact that New Zealand rugby were really over, put over a barrel in, in terms of Scotty Robertson. He had said previously that his Crusaders contract was coming to an end, that he was available and that he wanted to uh, try international rugby next. So, I mean, that would put out the, the feeders and I'd say he definitely would have had offers on the table from other international sides including those in the in the Six Nations. New Zealand rugby felt that they had to act now rather than even three or four months' time. But, uh, look, he is the standout candidate for New Zealand rugby. He is innovative. He is certainly a guy who can probably bring them to a, a higher level than, than Ian Foster actually can. Yeah, I, w- I th- wish him the best of luck. I think it's, it's, he's going to be a character, if nothing else, at the international stage as well. It's a very progressive appointment for New Zealand. Maybe some people could argue, maybe it's a few years before time. Again, given his track record with Crusaders here, I mean, even as a player, you know, he's very expansive in terms of his skill set. But again, his head coaching career with Crusaders has been nothing short of sensational. So many Super Rugby titles. He's just literally an awesome head coach. Just the way he's developed and nurtured teams season in, season out. I think you'll see a very much an evolution of the New Zealand game plan. I think from any Foster perspective, there must have been succession planning here when the review process kicked off at the start of this year, uh, particularly after the November Test Match Series. Otherwise, I think you're probably onto something here, Dean, that maybe Scotty Robertson was being headhunted by certain rugby union uh, boards here. Maybe Australia, maybe Scotland to a certain extent with Gregor Townsend. Maybe you never know what a World Cup cycle Again, that sort of element here. Who's to say with England, if England were to underperform a little bit in the World Cup, is Steve Borwick's job in peril after Eddie Jones being unceremoniously dumped. So I think there's a few kind of roles here that were probably feelers were basically sent out to Scotty Robertson. Uh, I think the New Zealand board, I think really, it, it was probably in the pipeline. But I think to mitigate the, the announcement now really does kind of settle the certainty in terms of who's the head coach now again what will be interesting here will be the, the background personnel because with the Ian Foster personnel shift here at the start of the year will an awful lot of that backroom staff go probably if Scotty Robertson had anything to do with it probably so I think that's going to be intriguing watch for 2024 and just to see how New Zealand really evolved their game plan particularly with ball in hand as well so 
no, it's a, it's a it's a good appointment, and as you say, he'll be a breath of fresh air from a test match coaching head coach perspective. I think you know his break dancing and stuff like that has been seen to good effect with the Crusaders. So, yeah, no, it's, a, it's another step up though uh, from club rugby to test match rugby. So it'll be interesting just to see how things go. I would add this. I mean, the All Blacks coach traditionally comes in, and you know they're two in the world. I think he could come in and the All Blacks will be fourth or fifth in the world, you know. So that's also another challenge that another All Blacks coach will not have faced before. Oh, absolutely. But again, that can be classic motivation for the players, a new incumbent coming in here, really looking to hit the ground running. You know, their ethos, their vision. The players are either going to buy into it or not. If they're not, then they're being dispatched out. There's plenty of player talent pool here within New Zealand. So I think you're going to see probably an awful lot of new exciting talent coming in in 2024 from New Zealand. Uh, but yeah, I think it's an interesting watch here, uh, Liam, certainly. I suppose, Liam, we'll leave it there. Lengthy one tonight, but uh, we had plenty to get through, particularly on the Aviva Stadium last weekend, the glorious uh, Six Nations win, uh, Grand Slam and Triple Crown for Ireland. So I suppose next week we'll review the URC round uh, 16 and also we'll have a look at the Champions Cup and Challenge Cup games we're on top on the following week so until then Liam have a great weekend and sure we'll chat next week thank you for listening to this podcast episode if you liked what you heard in this podcast why not subscribe to the Hawkeye Psychic podcast on either Amazon Spotify YouTube or Twitter platforms you can also follow me at Hawkeye Psychic on Facebook and Twitter for the latest sporting opinions articles and reports